Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, with the federal election last night, at least one Hamilton seat is still too close to call. Former Mayor Larry Deany will join us to talk about that. Justin Trudeau stays in power, but the Liberals fall short of a majority after a 36-day campaign. Are we right back where we started from? And the White House is giving its first clear indication that it is prepared to ease travel restrictions by November with one big condition, and only by air. It's frustrating, huh? We'll give you all the details on that. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's get right into it, of course. Uh, this is the day after the federal election, and uh, we are with another liberal minority government, as we've been talking about on the program, and uh, you've heard on the news all through the morning. And uh, we'll talk about some of the, the federal uh, ramifications of this and what's going to happen going forward on a national basis. Uh, but I want to spend the first part of the program I'm talking about some of the local things that are happening, because that's that's obviously what we're concerned about here, you know, with our, our local representation. Not a whole lot has changed, but there were some uh, eyebrow-raising moments, I guess, when you look at some of the local races. Uh, to get us started all this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program our former Hamilton Mayor, Larry DeAnne, uh, who's going to give us uh, his read on things. Uh, Larry, I assume it was a long night for you, or an early morning, I guess. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> glad you could hop on with us today. We knew it was going to be a long night, but uh, the, the result, uh, well, let me ask you, was it was it a surprise to you? Well, not really. Um, I think that if you were following uh, at least the polls and the ebb and flow of the campaign, and there were a number of high points and low points for each of the parties during the campaign, it seemed certainly in the last number of days that the Liberals were uh, not only on an upswing and likely to form government, but also flirting with majority. And, you know, they came, uh, you know, 10 or 12 seats shy um, and I think there are some reasons why they couldn't get over that hump, um, not the least of which was sort of the voter suppression. This is not a necessary election um, um, articulation that, that I heard, a narrative that I heard, especially from uh, the media and the right-wing media, uh, but also uh, the fact that, you know, there were some um, new elements, uh, and not the least of which was the People's Party injecting um, uh, some new blood, if you will, into the discourse and of course the collapse of the greens so i wasn't totally surprised by the result um and um rather pleased actually for the local results well let's talk about some of the writings and and uh, let's we'll start off we'll go uh, east to west i guess as we go across the area uh and we'll start in your neck of the woods uh with uh, hamilton east stony creek which uh, is your neck of the woods of course as uh, a former stony creek councillor former mayor of hamilton uh a new face uh representing that area uh, but not a new face to the people of that area uh, city councillor chad collins uh is the winner there and we have to ask, mention of course in the interest of full disclosure i know that you are, are a liberal supporter you've uh, run for the liberals yes. you've supported liberals and i know that you helped uh, Chad Collins' campaign, so just that's out on the table there. So we know uh, exactly where your heart is in a situation like this. But uh, this this was an open seat, of course, because Bob Bertina announced that he was not going to run again, uh, and Collins stepped in to, to take over for the Liberals in this situation. So it's it's not an upset necessarily. It's really the the Liberals retaking the seat. Talk to us about your your views, because I, I know you knocked on doors uh, and talked to some of the constituents there. What, what were you hearing, and, and and what did you see as a result of that? Well, yes, and, and you're right. I uh, I not only contributed some money, although I contributed money to some other uh, liberal candidates as well. <clears throat> I actually worked for uh, this campaign, uh, went out uh, five or six times, uh, put signs up, uh, did scrutineering yesterday. So, yes, I was fully in this camp. However, I've got to say that I'm also a political junkie and interested 
in in what's happening uh, and uh, what's happening with other parties as uh, as well. So what I saw, I, I I had a hunch that, of course, nothing is for sure, but I had a hunch that Chad was going to do very well and and possibly win because I saw the support at the doors. In fact, more than a number of occasions, the the negative comment I got. Um, when I went to advocate for Chad was, well, you know, we're going to lose him as a counselor if he gets elected federally. So there was a regret, not because of the job that he do, but because of the good job that he's done at the local level. Uh, let me, let, let me ask you about that, because that, that's an interesting yeah. point, and I wanted to get your read on this. Uh, in the last municipal election, there was a, a redrawing of the ward boundaries, and, yes. and Chad Collins, for the longest time, of course, was the representative of Hamilton East, and, and bordering on Stony Creek, but with the extension and the, the redrawing of the boundaries, a good deal of Stony Creek, lower Stony Creek, became part of his constituency, too. Was that a factor? Well, yes, because he not only um, represented it, but got to know the community as well over the last couple of years. Now, obviously not as well as he knew the, his, um, his other area that he represented for a quarter of a century, uh, but the familiarization certainly helped him. And he's also an Eastender. I mean, he lives right across the border from Stony Creek, uh, and so I'm uh, always familiar with, with the, the goings-on in, in this community, uh, both when it was uh, a separate lower-tier community, but also uh, during the amalgamation issues as well, because, uh, you know, they, they, uh, they are so closely um, uh, contiguous. Uh, so that certainly helped them. And, uh, and by the way, what really helped them was the fact that a traditional NDP area that he served as a counselor uh, and I haven't seen all of the polls, but I think came out very strongly for him. Uh, and that's why the NDP vote was so deflated. I think it's because people were comfortable with the work that Chad did. So I was very pleased to see that. At, at the slightly higher level, of course, uh, this election, and, and I don't buy this elections are unnecessary. That is so anti-democratic to say that elections are not necessary. Uh, we value elections. It's the expression of democracy. But what this election did, I mean, nationally as well as locally, it shifted political ground. It looks as if Hamilton's going to send three members to Parliament, Philomena Tassi, of course, Chad Collins, who've been confirmed. But I'm looking at what's happening in Hamilton Mountain with Lisa Yeah, Hefner. well, <clears throat> let's slide into that, because I wanted to go riding by riding. And Hamilton Mountain, we must officially say, is not yet decided. Uh, Lisa Hefner, of course, a uh, TV uh, reporter for many years uh, and, and journalist, uh, with the liberal candidate there. It was a seat that was held by the NDP for, uh, for quite a long time. Uh, and uh, she was brought in there as a star candidate. Uh, uh, like I say, there's still some, some mail-in ballots that need to be counted there, but she is the leader so far. And, and to your point, Larry, that would be a big win for the Liberals because it's been a while since, since they've held that seat. Huge win. And, of course, the fact that Scott DeVell, who was a popular MP up there, um, didn't run again, uh, certainly helped uh, the new faces coming on board. Uh, the fact that... Um, that, uh, you know, they brought in some guy from Welland uh, to run as the standard bearer, I don't think uh, uh, reflected well uh, to the local community. I'm sure that there was a bit, there was a bit of a factor there. Um, and, of course, Lisa has worked uh, in Hamilton all these many years telling Hamilton stories, so she was a known quantity, and that helped her as well. Uh, but, you know, when she started the race, um, and it was a shoestring uh, budgeted race uh, that she ran, by the way, uh, but when she started the race, she was uh, running third. And, uh, and uh, thankfully, to at least if you're a liberal, 
uh, you thank the fact that uh, the the national polls uh, uh, increased uh, as the race went on, uh, but also she got to the doors and 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 uh, brought her message out. And um, yes, it's too close to call, but she's maintained a 500 or so seat plurality uh, throughout the night. And I expect that when the uh, mail-in ballots uh, are counted, that same ratio will be held. And I think Lisa, knock on wood, if you're a liberal again, uh, will be confirmed as the uh, Mountain MP. But that means that three members of parliament are going to represent uh, the city of Hamilton in the government side. I want and to talk about that in a second, but let's let's cut across downtown first of all. Uh, yeah. Hamilton Center, uh, Matthew Green, uh, the incumbent re-elected. No real surprise there? No surprise whatsoever. Um, you know, he runs his usual slick uh, campaign. Uh, not my favorite candidate, but uh, you got to congratulate him for doing well what he does. Uh, the Liberals had a, uh, uh, the, the Conservatives had a disastrous candidate who couldn't even articulate the difference between the Conservative and the PPC party when he was asked at a debate. Um, so he was a disaster. The Liberals had a good candidate. She did a lot of work, uh, Margaret Bennett. But what she didn't do is take the fight to Matthew. She gave him a pass. Didn't talk about, uh, you know, the, uh, the anti-police uh, agenda uh, that he's got. Didn't talk about uh, you know, the controversial uh, cop-baiting uh, issue that uh, the courts reprimanded him about. So she didn't take the fight to him, and, and Matthew, of course, had uh, an open field uh, to, to run in, and uh, he was rewarded by his, uh, by his followers. Uh, Hamilton West, uh, Ancaster Dundas, uh, Philomena Tassi, former Labour Minister in the last uh, Trudeau government, uh, re-elected, and, and again... Uh, uh, not much of a surprise, just from the people I've talked to in, in that particular area. They seemed pretty content with the work that she was doing. Yeah, and remember, she was a minister that brought in unprecedented investment in the city, not only the uh, billions of dollars for the LRT. I know it's a little controversial still, but she did bring investment to the city, um, uh, million, hundreds of millions for DeFasco, uh, tens of millions for housing. So in terms of, I mean, if there are many ways of, of measuring uh, effectiveness, but if one of them is how much money are you able to bring in investment to our community, Philomena did pretty well. Um, as and, and Bob Bertina as well. He was part of that team at, at that time, even though he exited in a controversial way. Um, you know, the, the, the two uh, liberal members did, uh, did all right for this city, and uh, Philomena was rewarded. Uh, the other one, Judd, Flamborough of Lambrook, I wanted to mention, too. Uh, again, a, a seat that was vacated. David Sweet held that seat uh, for the longest time, of course. Well, he had Ancaster, and then they redrew the boundaries, but he was there, uh, chose not to run again. Uh, Dan Muse is, a, is a, a longtime conservative volunteer. He's a new face, I guess, to Parliament Hill, but uh, but not a new face to, to local politics anyway. Uh, he worked for David Sweet and did an awful lot of work. Uh, Vito Scro, though, the former mayoral candidate, uh, anti-LRT, since you mentioned it, Larry, uh, did quite well there. And, and as he anticipated, I, I think a lot of people anticipated that he would. That was a little closer than maybe a lot of people thought it would be. Well, frankly, again, when Vito started, he was uh, well behind, um, um, not running in third place, but, but you know, uh, 10 or 12 points behind Dan. Uh, and he closed the gap. Uh, he did well, um, considering uh, that uh, that writing, of course, uh, is a David Sweet writing. Uh, Dan Muse, who's a nice guy, by the way, I, I know Dan, he not only worked for David, uh, but he worked for um, for Donna Skelly as well, met him in a number of functions, uh, soft-spoken, quiet, unassuming, 
uh, hardworking, sincere. I mean, all of the good traits that you want politicians to have. So it's not a surprise that that uh, he won. But let me tell you, uh, Vito uh, made him sweat a little bit. I'm sure last night uh, he had a good showing, even though he came up short. All right, let's uh, get into the the ramifications of this. As you say, if Lisa Hefner can hang on to uh, to Hamilton Mountain, uh, that's three sitting MPs uh, for this government right now. Uh, I would assume, and maybe you should never assume in politics, Larry, that the Philomena Tassi, in some way, shape, or form, will probably still be in cabinet with the new Trudeau government. Uh, she seemed to be a, a rather popular member of that cabinet previously to that. Uh, what does this mean for Hamilton? Well, so there's there's been a, a, a political shakeup. Uh, remember, Hamilton has uh, both uh, at the provincial level and at the federal level been NDP territory. It means that the ground has shifted. Uh, the Liberals have retaken the lead in in uh, in that respect, uh, and so uh, I think Hamiltonians are pleased uh, of the investment that has been made in the city, and have rewarded uh, Liberals. There, there there were good votes for Liberals right across, even in Hamilton Center. I think. Uh, Margaret did uh, as well as any liberal has done there, especially against a popular MP uh, for that area. So there's a ground shift um, in terms of uh, political support. It's got to be worrisome to the NDP. They need cities like Hamilton if they're going to build momentum, and they lost momentum in our city. Uh, as well, in terms of uh, you know uh, macro implications, um, you know, this was a consequential election. The conservatives moved closer to the middle. Could you really tell uh, the difference between uh, a liberal and, and a conservative? If you listen to Aaron O'Toole, he was out liberaling the liberals in terms of what he was willing to spend and, you know, being uh, uh, not a social conservative at all, which angered some in his party, but being very much in the center or left of center on some of those issues. Uh, and, of course, you saw the destruction of the Greens, um, and somebody's going to have to analyze exactly what happened there. And Annemie Paul, uh, even though I think she did well in the national debate, came in a very poor fourth, and I would guess that her days are numbered. Um, uh, but the most disturbing part of this election and the most consequential is the rise of, of the uh, People's Party, um, which which is a xenophobic uh, uh, some would say racist, uh, uh, some would say um, um, not a positive force, and we saw some of the antics, of course, uh, that some of the members of that party did, not sanctioned, I would hope, by the leader, but certainly not chastised by the leader in terms of the vitriol, the anger, the Trumpism, let me put it that way, that we saw in Canadian politics. And even here in Hamilton East Stony Creek, you know, uh, the People's Party candidate who's a nobody who didn't campaign, didn't talk to the media apparently, uh, put up a lot of signs, uh, had scrutineers at the place where I was at. Uh, he got a couple of thousand votes. So there are a couple of thousand uh, people who are willing to follow that xenophobic, angry uh, party. And, of course, nationally, uh, you know, they're up to 5%. And as, uh, as Bernier himself said, uh, if there was proportional representation, they'd have 20 members of parliament. Uh, arguing for th their xenophobic, racist point of view. If that, if that isn't an argument against uh, proportional representation, I'm not sure what is. Uh, but, but all of those factors, uh, I think, are going to make it an interesting next two or four years, and I'm predicting four years, because after the fuss that the opposition made about this so-called unnecessary election, 
they're not going to be anxious to trigger an election themselves. So I think Trudeau has a, you know, a green light to, to, to lead with not impunity, but some boldness, um, given that the uh, op- opposition parties aren't going to call his bluff. And uh, he may uh, yet, um, um, you know, uh, write out the mandate uh, over the next four years. We'll it's going to be fascinating that. to see. You're absolutely right. And uh, there's going to have to be, as you mentioned, some reevaluation of some of the party leadership here, the, the Greens and maybe even the Conservatives, too. Larry, we've got to leave it there. We're uh, up against the clock here. Uh, always great to get your perspective on this. Uh, go have a nap this afternoon. Uh, there's lots more to talk about in the days ahead. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Bill. Former Hamilton Mayor Larry Deany with his assessment of what happened in the Hamilton area and uh, some other surprises and some rather noteworthy uh, results uh, from other areas that we're going to get to a little bit later on in the program. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Another minority government uh, and a reassessment, uh, as we were just talking about in the last segment, uh, I think for some of the party leaders, Green Party leader Annamie Paul, certainly, uh, who actually even finished fourth in her own riding. Uh, and there's a lot of speculation about what's going to happen with the conservative leader, Aaron O'Toole, but uh, he addressed that last night in his concession speech. In the months ahead, as Mr. Trudeau gears up for yet another election, we must continue this journey to welcoming more Canadians to to take another look at our party. More people voted for Canada's Conservatives than any other party, and that's a strength to build on. Uh, Same as the the last election, of course, where the Conservatives had the popular vote, but uh, it did not translate into uh, gaining power or holding government, uh, such as our parliamentary system the way it is, though. So where are we going now, and what's going to happen going forward? Uh, You heard Mr. O'Toole talking about the possibility of another election very soon. Uh, That's uh, one of the talking points, of course, that they were using an awful lot during the election, the unnecessary election as they characterized it. I'm not so sure that's an apt description. Uh, Pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Dr. Laurie Turnbull. Dr. Turnbull, of course, is the director of School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Doctor, always a pleasure. I'm sure it's a very busy morning for you. Thanks for taking some time with us today. I'm always happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Let me ask you right off the top. uh, Are you surprised by the outcome? No, I'm not. Um, I guess it was possible that some party would have made gains, but and then some party would have made a loss, but nope, we're pretty much back where we were. but there was some concern, I know, earlier on in the evening uh, in your neck of the woods when some of the results started to come in from uh, from the uh, the East Coast provinces and what was happening there. Uh, a couple of seats lost by the Liberals, and, and I, I know some of the pundits that I was watching as I was flipping around the channels last night uh, were saying, well, that, that could be sending a, a bad message. Uh, one of them, probably not too surprising, of course, the former fisheries minister who was in the major, major controversy because of indigenous fishing rights and things of this nature, uh, and she was on the hot seat for that. But uh, it seems as if, uh, by all intents and purposes, that uh, the, the, the Liberal Party pretty much hung on to what they needed to hang on to to gain that momentum heading into Quebec and Ontario. I think that's right. And I think it started to be clear in the last couple of weeks that the Liberals probably were going to lose some because the Conservatives were competitive in some and the NDP were competitive in some. So it was probably going to happen. Even Halifax, though, like Andy Fillmore held on for the Liberals, but the NDP, Lisa Roberts, came really close. And so it's in some ways like even the seats that the Liberals won, it obscures how close the race really was. And Sydney Victoria for uh, Jaime Batiste, same, like he came first, but um, the Conservative was just at his heels. So, and, and of course, Quebec, the, the battleground in Quebec, uh, the NDP expected to, or hoped, I guess, maybe is a more appropriate word, 
uh, to make some major gains there. That didn't really happen. Uh, the resurgence of the block and, and uh, the, the key thing that I think you and I talked about last week uh, that may have started to solidify a lot of the block support was uh, was the English language debate, where there's some question about Bill 21 and, and whether or not it was constitutional, etc., like that. And that certainly uh, got uh, Mr. Blanchett's back up, but maybe even the back uh, the support of, of the block uh, seemed to, to, I guess, have a resurgence because of that. The, the, I guess the, the the pride and you know the fact that we are Quebec and nobody in Canada is going to tell us what to do. Absolutely, and I think it took a few days for that to kind of percolate and then to show up a little bit. Like it wasn't necessarily overnight, but yeah, when there was time for everybody to absorb what had happened in the debate and for Quebec to have this reaction, Blanchette, who hadn't had a perfect campaign by any stretch by that point, started to pick up support and to kind of galvanize that energy in, in Quebec. But still, over the weekend, when I was looking at those ridings, like around Montreal on the South Shore, there was about 12 of them that it wasn't clear whether it was going to go block or liberal, so I was, I was not sure. I figured it was a toss-up, but yeah, Blanchette held his own for sure. And that's interesting, the way that came out, because as we mentioned, the NDP were hoping to make gains there. I, I don't know uh, that the Conservatives uh, were uh, ardent in their uh, approach to, to Quebec, as, you know, when the, their daycare program was, was lambasted by the, a lot of the people in the media in Quebec. And, uh, but they still had, had some visions, I guess, of trying to pick seats up. But uh, as, as I think you predicted to us, it was going to really be a black liberal uh, competition in Quebec. And that's pretty much the way it turned out. That's it. I mean, I, w- I will say it was interesting. Ruth Ellen Brasso won her seat back for the NDP. So she had lost just by a bit in 2019. And now she ended up taking that seat back from the block last night. So that's one kind of difference. But yeah, this was very much um, Trudeau versus Blanchette. And we saw that dynamic in the debate so clearly. And I think Trudeau really went into this looking for his majority, thinking he was going to get it largely in Quebec. Right. Like he was looking at those seats he could slip. And I think he was really counting on, you know, five or six more of those going his way. And they didn't. So here we are again. Let's talk about Ontario, uh, Battleground Ontario. And, and I, more than one person mentioned last night that, well, you know, elections are won and lost in the in the 905-416 area. It's such a key area. And I know that uh, some people are very upset about there's such a concentration of seats in that particular area. But that's because that's where the population base is. I mean, people have to understand that, uh, that it's, it's, it's seat-rich and voter-rich. And uh, it's been a stronghold for the Liberals, uh, something the, the Conservatives just could not crack. And they didn't have much success with it last night. No. And I think um, that's really where O'Toole needed to be able to resonate and be able to connect with voters in order to be able to turn things around. And when we think, like, back when the conservatives merged, it was, you know, Harper's message and people who were leading the Unite the Right movement was, we need to win in Ontario if we want to form a government. And as long as we're splitting the right or we're not getting through, the liberals are going to keep winning. And so I think, you know... O'Toole takes a very different approach to the leadership of the party, obviously, but the facts remain that the Conservatives need to find a way to be able to break through in those really vote-rich areas, and we didn't see that happen this time. So that's going to be a challenge for O'Toole when he faces his caucus. It's going to be like, how, how are we going to change this going forward? But why were they as unsuccessful as they were? Because your point's well taken. O'Toole, I think, made a concerted effort to try to say, "Hey, I'm not like the other guy. I'm not like Stephen Harper. You know, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a pro-choice guy. I'm this. I'm that." He tried to take the middle road on that, uh, much to the chagrin of an awful lot of people, I guess, in some of the, in, in Alberta and Saskatchewan. Uh, but were people just in Ontario? They were, were they just not buying that that version of O'Toole? I'm going to be honest. I think that if he wanted to really uh, get through in those ridings, 
his platform had to be deeply progressive in a way that it wasn't. I think that he made um, a mistake in not taking a more aggressive approach to the child care question. I think families looked at his child care plan by way of tax credits and compared that to the liberal plan that is, yes, it is a, is a program. It's a, it's a federal government getting involved big time, you know, in your life. <laughs> but at the same time, it's, I think, something that a lot of families are looking at and thinking that they need. I think if, if he wanted to get through in Ontario, he, I, that would have been something I think that could have helped him break through. But he, he didn't do that, right? Like he stayed on the side of, of this a progressive plan, but very much a fiscal conservative plan when it came to the approach in terms of tax rebates, tax credits. It was a big spending program, but it was still kind of not in that putting, putting the program in place. It was, the, it was through the tax credits instead. Uh, and, and again, the concern about, you know, was it actually creating spaces? I mean, you know, affordability is one thing, but yeah. if there's no space in the, in, in a daycare for your, your children, it doesn't much matter how much it costs because you're not going to be able to access it. And that was it. But it, it just seemed in the last weeks of, of the campaign, even maybe in the last couple of days even, uh, that, you know, the, it started to resonate that, well, you know, Tool was trying to portray himself as not like Harper, not like Andrew Scheer, uh, but on issues like gun control and like the daycare program and, frankly, even the vaccination program where he would not get specific about how many of his candidates were vaccinated. Uh, he was kind of like, yeah, you should do this, but I'm not going to press this sort of thing. Uh, I, I don't know if that that alienated him in Ontario. In other words, they said, yeah, he may be talking the talk, but he's not walking the walk of, of being a middle-of-the-roader. That's it. I think people were confused. I was confused about why, if you're saying you encourage people to get vaccines, how important it is, he's talking about he and his wife going to get the vaccines. Why not say, you know, why not go harder on that? Why not say, yes, I, of course I will insist that my candidates are all vaccinated, double vaccinated, because there's some, like, I think, lack of consistency there that's really troubling. If you say, you know, I'm encouraging vaccines, but yet it's your, it, it, it's up to you, your choice. Well, the vaccine won't work that way if people see it as, yeah, this is my choice. I can do it or not. Like, nobody wants to force someone to do anything, but still the effectiveness of the vaccine isn't going to be what it should be if we take that kind of approach. And then when only 50% of his candidates were saying they were double vaccinated, it's like, okay, (laughs) how committed is this guy to vaccine? And so those sorts of doubts, I think, really kind of start to eat away at his campaign definitely in the last week. And, and uh, you saw the results in Ontario as a result of that. And, and as you mentioned, that's the battleground that they seem to have to crack. Uh, and I'll leave it up to them. What about Aaron O'Toole, though, as a leader, Doctor? The, the, the speculation, even before the, the vote started to get counted yesterday, uh, was that uh, he's got one shot at this, and if he doesn't, the knives are going to be out for him. I, 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 I don't know how these guys are going to do this. I understand there is going to be a leadership review somewhere down the road for this. And uh, you know, Tom Mulcair might be calling him this morning and said, beware the eyes of March, uh, because you know, he wasn't expecting it. And it, it. They kind of came out of the dark when he went to a, a policy convention in, in Edmonton just after he was defeated uh do they hang on to o'toole do they say you know all right let's give this guy another chance because there's a lot of dissension within the party itself about who are we and is this the right guy to lead us and do we really want to be a progressive conservative party again i think you've pretty well hit it like that's that's the issue like for the party to get a new leader to start having that conversation in earnest right now um i mean it's going to be destabilizing he's only been there for a year and then, you know, Shear was only there for a couple of years before him. And so when you get into this kind of ro- revolving door in leader's office, that's not great for a party. That's a distraction. However, 
he needs to be able to show that he really is the, the leader. He is the leader of the caucus, not just the party at large, and that the caucus are behind him. And I think he's going to have a lot of questions about whether leaning progressive, leaning centrist was the right approach in this election. Because, again, like he held his own, but he didn't gain any traction. And could he have, you know, because he's lost, he lost some popular vote in Alberta, he could afford to. But still, like, is, are people going to get nervous because the base might be starting to erode a bit? And so if he's going to compete for those progressive votes, like what's, what is the strategy forward for that? I think that's one of the, the doubts about him is that with Harper, even if you didn't like him, you knew where he was going. But with O'Toole, there's this sense that, oh, you know, like how do you feel about that issue? And could you be kind of encouraged by a faction of the party to go along with something that the rest of us don't really want to do? Like he's going to have to figure out, I think, how he shows that he's making the decisions. He's got the party behind him and he can go forward. There's a, a piece uh, in the Toronto Star about a week and a half or so ago by Robin Urbach, the political columnist, and I think the title of it, I'm paraphrasing it, but the gist of it was, uh, if you don't like Aaron O'Toole's policy, wait a couple of days. Uh, not really yeah. the, the sort of branding that you want if you want to be a prime minister. That's it. Um, you need to be, you know, you need to be able to show this is what I stand for no matter what. And so everybody shifts sometimes, but when there's a sense that, yeah, you know, push hard enough and he'll change his mind, that's not leadership. And so... He needs to be able to answer those questions. But again, like, I mean, if they want to make a decision about changing the leadership, then who would it be? Because I don't think Peter McKay has got another round in him. And if he, maybe there's somebody in the caucus that would make sense, you know, somebody who's been newly elected. But I think to have the conversation in earnest, you've got to be talking about, OK, if not O'Toole, then who? Jagmeet Singh, similar situation. Uh, I think he gets a pass, though, when it comes to leadership reviews. I know he did fight in the last election in, in 2019, but he was a relative newcomer, actually just relatively new to, to Parliament at that stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they didn't, they didn't, I think, even meet some of the expectations that they were hoping to attain last night. Uh, but he did come across as a very popular guy. The Canadian public are getting to know him. He, uh, he, uh, he gets a pass. I'm sure they're going to say, yeah, we, we could have and should have done better, but let's just ride this for a while. Well, yeah, and I think actually there's going to be an interesting pressure on him to really make this minority parliament work for him because I think the fact that we got back pretty much the parliament we went in with, although, you know, some some sheep shifting, sorry, but like overall the results look the same, I think there's a pressure to make this parliament work. And there's, you know, I think the previous parliament was kind of like, okay, this is, Trudeau had kind of got in trouble because of SNC-Lavalin, because of some other things. People aren't as happy with him. This is a temporary scenario. I think that's how Trudeau felt about it, too, which is why he tried to get his majority. I don't think this parliament is going to have that temporary minority parliament feel. I think this is going to have the feel of this is what Canadians want. Now go make it work. So Singh needs to be really upfront and strong about what he plans to extract in exchange for support. So is he going to get that, um, you know, Assistance for uh, student debt, assistance with rent, uh, long-term care, pharma care. Like, what are you going to get to show that you're making an impact on this problem? To that end, though, uh, it takes two to, to make a deal. Uh, are the Liberals and it's Justin Trudeau ready to sit down and, and, and barter like that and simply say, let's make this thing work? Uh, it's it, a coalition in name, if, if, if not in name, at least in, in principle, to say, okay, we can, we can find some, some common ground here to move forward on some of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that there's quite a bit in the platforms if you put them down. Um, they've got a lot of agreement on values. They've got a lot of ing- agreement in terms of priorities. And so, you know, maybe sit down and start drawing some lines around things that they'd be able to work together on. 
And this is a different parliament for Trudeau, too, in that now he's been prime minister for six years. This is his third term. Um, is he thinking about a legacy piece? And does he want to achieve that, even if it means working with somebody else, you know, rather than ter- like treat this as a really high, highly partisan environment where nobody wins, to be honest, right? Like, I wonder if he'll take a bit of a different approach since regardless of when he plans to step away, there's some sense to thinking that this would probably be his last term as prime minister. Yeah, that's, uh, well, and again, there's the speculation. This is sometime in the next year and a half to two years, he may just step aside. Uh, I didn't get the sense that he was inclined to be that way uh, last night with some of his comments. I guess a lot of it would uh, depend on, on how effective this parliament can be, I guess, and what they want to attain uh, in situations like this. I mean, you know, if they were to look at, as we did with the Conservatives, you know, who's who's there on the sidelines just in case. Uh, the heir apparent seems to be Christia Freeland, when and if uh, Justin Trudeau decides that he, he doesn't want to be prime minister anymore. Uh, but as we found out in politics, nothing is for certain, is it? You got it. And this party is the Justin Trudeau party. It's not the Liberal Party of 20 years ago. And so I think it's going to be difficult for the party, to be honest, to move on to a new leader, even though they're the biggest party and they're the, they're the government. There's still going to be, I think, a difficult existential exercise to say once the loyalty has now been built around Justin Trudeau for so many years, how do you transition to a new person? And what does that mean? And what will be the benefits and costs? And who's the party looking for? Like, it's, it's, it's going to be hard, I think. You touched on this a second ago. We're just about out of time. I uh, really appreciate you joining us, uh, this doctor. But the, the the speculation that well, this is as Aaron O'Toole said. Well, you know, there'll be another election in the next year and a half to two years. I, I don't get the sense that's going to happen. I, I I get the sense even from what the leaders were saying that, that there's a sense that okay, we have to make this work, which is going to be as you say, probably up to the NDP and the Liberals to try to 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 forge something in in here. But I get the sense this is going to go on for maybe two three years. I mean, minority governments don't have to last only eighteen to twenty four months they can work effectively we've seen that in ontario provincially uh and i I get the sense there's going to be a lot of pressure on on the trudeau liberals at this stage to make this one work i think you're right and i if i had to guess too i'm i was sort of thinking three years like they don't have to go the four necessarily but um i think there is a sense from canadians that this is a minority parliament like we don't go into the ballot box and check off minority you know you don't get that choice you get a choice for a candidate and so trying to impose this sense that the collective chose a minority like it's that's a bit tricky however um you know the arguments around strategic voting didn't work right both o'toole and trudeau were trying to tell people you know think strategically vote you know vote for who's going to win essentially right like they were basically saying that and canadians no like we we came back with the same parliament we had basically and so and again a lot of these writings are really tight and so i think there's enough support for all of the parties that we can't say you know a minority government is a temporary situation before we fall into that two-party plus system again. I don't think we're there. And so they, they all kind of have to accept it, even though, yes, it's a bit more frustrating and things take longer than they do in a majority government. Well, uh, we don't know what's going to happen uh, going around the corner on this one. Uh, there's so much to happen in the next couple of days. And uh, as you mentioned, still some seats that are, are very much up in the air because of the, uh, the mail-in ballots. So we'll see what uh, happens when the dust settles. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, too. Take care. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull, Director of School of Public Administration and, of course, Political Science Professor at Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
Well, the good news is that uh, it looks like uh, some of the travel restrictions in the United States uh, are going to be eased just a little bit. The White House says President Biden will ease foreign travel restrictions into the U.S. beginning in November. It reports that uh, the U.S. is going to be asking for uh, foreign travelers to show proof of vaccination and a negative uh, COVID-19 test. Sager McGaddy's got some details. The new policy replaces a hodgepodge of restrictions that kept out non-U.S. citizens who'd been in Europe, much of Asia, and some other countries in the prior two weeks. The bans had led to frustration among U.S. allies, particularly in the European Union and the United Kingdom, where virus cases are far lower than here. So that's the good news. Uh, the bad news is uh, from this side of the border, uh, some of the restrictions uh, that they have imposed but people coming across the border uh, from Canada into the United States uh, remain and uh, that's causing an awful lot of consternation not just on this side of the border but over in some of the border states as well joining us to talk about all this is uh, Brian J. Karen Brian of course is a political commentator for CNN columnist for Salon.com and the Washington Diplomat and host of the podcast Just Ask the Question which is always a great podcast to get some insights as to what's happening in the Beltway these days uh, Brian pleasure to have you on the program thanks for joining us today Pleasure to be back. Let's talk a little bit about the, the, the travel restrictions, first of all, because it's been a point of contention for the longest time. Uh, one of the harshest critics the president has now, it's, it's not Mitch McConnell. Uh, it's actually one of his own folks here. Of course, we're talking to Representative Brian Higgins, a New York congressman, uh, who, among many mm -hmm. other U.S. folks in, in the Congress and in the Senate, are saying, President, come on, you're, you're, you're in conflict with yourself here. Uh, how much pressure is on the president right now to, to reassess what he's just done here? Well, there's a lot of pressure on the president right now, and it's because of the decisions he's made. It's what Congress has done. It's the fact that we've dragged our feet, and, of course, we reached a very grim milestone this week. There are now more dead Americans due to COVID-19 than there were during the 1918 flu pandemic. So you look at, at everything this administration has done, it's frustrated because it can't get people to vaccinate. And that lack of vaccination combined with the COVID uh, variant, the, the Delta variant, has created an environment in which they're trying to keep it safe for everyone. At the same time, they're, they cannot risk closing the, the economy, as was done shutting everything down in the beginning of the virus, because of the simple fact that people have to eat, have to pay the bills, and they have to live. So it's uh, trying to juggle all of that is very difficult. And Congress it, is a victim of its own foul uh, actions because there are members of Congress who haven't supported, you know, vaccinations, mandatory vaccinations, hasn't supported masking. They fought it and at the same time then turn around and gripe at the president for the actions because of, you know, of what he's done because of COVID. And they've created as many of the problems as they've helped to solve. It's a convoluted mess. And honestly, it is. It just shows how poorly, how ineffective our government has been in dealing with this. I mean, from the Canadian perspective, and I know you've heard the scuttlebutt, Brian, from from uh, a number of uh, different sources right now. We'll, we'll start naming names in just a couple of minutes. But the, the conundrum here that I find myself in, I mean, you know, I'm in Hamilton, and of course, I'm 35 minutes from the border here to Niagara Falls or to Buffalo, wherever I want to go. Our London listeners, same thing, about an hour away, and they're in, they can be in Detroit. I can hop on a plane right now and go and visit you in Washington, uh, but I can't get in the car and drive across the border. Uh, and even though I've, you know, I'm double vaccinated, I got proof of vaccination. I can show up. They still won't let that across. Now, 
the other, as you know, and you talked to, uh, with us about this a couple of weeks ago, uh, Americans can come across with those same things. I know with proof of vaccination, etc. Our good friends from California were just up here in Ontario a couple of weeks ago uh, for the first time in more than two years. So they're saying, hey, if, if we can do this, why aren't you doing this? And and as you mentioned, we talked about Representative Higgins doing this, but a number of other folks, uh, including uh, Kristen Gillibrand and so many others, are, are urging the president to reconsider this. Yeah, and as well he should. And this is one of those... You know, when I ask the administration for comments on this, I get stonewalled. The administration is is very – this administration is difficult to deal with from a communications perspective. They do not communicate well with the American public. They do not communicate well with reporters. They have shut down access, and they continue to be a pain because they don't do this well. This, if you want to point to something that Joe Biden has done poorly as president, this is it. And the simple fact of the matter is they, they have not dealt with this with the simple fact that they are hypocrites when it comes to this particular portion of, of dealing with the COVID virus. I, I don't know how else to put it other than the fact that they have done it poorly. They continue to do it poorly. And, and look, when I criticize them for, them for this, it's not the same as criticize. Everyone says, well, well, then what do you want, Trump? And I go, well, that, that's a heck of a choice. I mean, this isn't a, a this isn't a either or. It's not a binary uh, thing to do. It's simply that Donald Trump was anathema to to democracy. Joe Biden is merely inept in how he implements his policies. I don't think Joe Biden is going to go and try and and steal an election. I don't think he's anti-democratic. It's a low bar to stumble over, and the Democrats have done it. But the simple fact of the matter is, he deserves the criticism for this, and he has not done it well. And you're absolutely right. How is it that you can hop up an airplane and fly from where you live to see me in D.C. and you can't drive across the border? How silly is that? Fix it. And, and the people that are, are speaking out, I mean, we mentioned, uh, you know, Senator Gillibrand. I mean, Amy Klobuchar, uh, Angus King, he's, he's the, the independent senator, of course, from, from Maine. Uh, if, you, if, you, if you can't like Angus King, you can't like anybody. This is not a guy who's considered to be radical in any way, shape, or form. And, and they're imploring the White House, as, as you've been reporting, to say, look, at, you're hurting local economies. We count on cross-border traffic, uh, Canadians coming over, Americans going over at the other side of the border. Local economies depend on that, and it's not happening, and, and they're suffering as a result of and then, you know, the sad part of it is, I, I look, in Canada, they have been far better in dealing with this pandemic than we have in the U.S. <laughs> That's the silliest part of it. If anybody should be banned from coming over, you know, and crossing borders, it should be, you know, the Americans. I mean, my God, I, I'm double vaxxed and masked, and there are people who run around in this country going, woohoo! I'd rather take, you know, horse dewormer. There are people in this country that will take a deworming medication designed by science for horses rather than taking a vaccine designed by scientists for humans. How stupid is that? And, and if we're keeping cross-border traffic, we're, we're closing it down because what is it that we fear? That common sense may come across the border? It's it's a very frustrating situation, and and I can say I, I, 
the, the perspective here that we want to uh, underscore here is that it's 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 the, a lot of the Americans are, are, are questioning this as well, which leads me to something else I wanted to talk to you about today, if I could. Uh, president Biden Good. addresses the United Nations, uh, and and this is always a big deal for the U.S. president, any world leader that can you know get down to the General Assembly and, and speak to the world, basically, uh, and. Uh, we, we saw what Donald Trump did when he had that opportunity to do this. Uh, Biden is a different cat altogether. We understand that. Uh, but there's an awful lot of concern globally, Brian, as, as you know, about Biden and, and whether or not he's got his, his, his hands on the reins here. I, we, I, we know he won the election fair and square, no matter what Donald Trump and, and Trump's acolytes say. But they're looking to say, okay, you said you wanted to lead, Joe. You said you were going to make this different right now. Uh, Look what you did in Afghanistan. Look what you did. How come you're picking a fight with Macron in France uh, and some of the other G7 and NATO allies? And there's a lot of questions about uh, Joe Biden right now on the global front. Uh, how important is it that he's, he, he checks a few of these boxes today to reassure the allies that, uh, that America is back, as he keeps saying? Well, I think it's important that he checks the boxes. I don't know if he can check all the boxes because the actions that he t- look. The biggest mistake they made in Afghanistan in withdrawing was not being a, they got poor intelligence on how quick the Taliban would take over. That's the biggest mistake they made. Should we have gotten out of there? Yeah, we should have never been there. We spent 20 years there and $3.5 trillion. Just imagine if we had invested that money in roads, bridges, schools, business, infrastructure, instead of killing people. I mean, that, then you're, you're, it would have been a success. But the simple fact of the matter is there are veterans in this country going, you know, I feel like he pulled us out. And, you know, what does that say? Were we there in vain? Yeah, we were. Sorry, get over it. That, we made a mistake going in there and staying for 20 years when we didn't need to be there. He got us out. Congratulations for him. He evacuated a, a city the size of I mean, he evacuated 130,000 people, the equivalent to a city the size of Fort Lauderdale in less than a month. Good. All of that was great. What he didn't do was anticipate things well, and then afterwards what he didn't do, as usual, is didn't communicate well. And he didn't tell people what it was that he wanted to do and how he was going to do it and, and how he did it. There are schools of thought that there are, as far as France goes, then they messed up with this uh, – uh, treaty with you know austria i'm sorry australia and britain over nuclear submarines without really consulting france and you know angering our our allies there that was a misstep he continues to in most of his missteps are because of miscommunication there are those who think that that uh, joe biden aren't he doesn't have his faculties i don't agree with that what i do agree with is those who say there are competing factions within this White House and no one person has stepped forward to, you know, to lead it. And that's what he has to do. And that's what he hasn't done. So he has a lot to answer to when he stands up before the United Nations today. And look, he's no Donald Trump. He's not going to get out and be a, a jerk like Trump. But there are legitimate questions and there need to be some strong answers. And I don't know if they can provide them. But, but you've just, I think, given us the perfect uh, concept of, of the construct that we're looking at here. Uh, just as, you know, when you say, hey, I want to criticize Biden, people say, what do you want Trump back? Of course not. Uh, and I don't think anybody in the global community is saying they want Trump back either. They, they're glad that, that Joe Biden is there. And, and let's face it, they know Joe Biden. He's had a, an international presence for years, uh, foreign relations, yeah. of course, and, and on the Senate and as a vice president for eight years under Obama. So these guys know him. They're on a first-name basis with him. And, and I think what I'm hearing, 
hearing from an awful lot of them at this point anyway, Brian, is they're saying, look, it, we're expecting more from you. Uh, and, you know, it's been a few months now. Uh, you know, when are you going to hit your stride here? And, and it's not just so much him. It's the administration that seems to be making some missteps. Yep. And, and like you've been reporting for years now, the buck stops at the Oval Office. Right. And does it indeed. And look, like I, <laughs> everyone, it's like saying, what do you want, Trump back? It's like, do you want cancer or do you want pneumonia? Well, I don't want either. But if I got to take one, I'll take pneumonia because I can. I might be able to get past that. <laughs> but the, the simple fact of the matter is, the world needs and what the United States demands is some leadership out of the executive office more than we've seen. It has. It was a very low bar to crawl over to be better than Donald Trump. And you're right. The world is relieved that Donald Trump is no longer around. The United States is relieved that. Donald Trump is no longer around, but could we at least aspire to something better than what we've got? And that's the question he's going to have to answer today in, in the United Nations. And it will be interesting to see how that address goes, and then it will be interesting to see what actions follow in the wake of it. Well, and that's that's basically, I guess, what you're expecting from a president in a situation like that is, you know, if it, if it means gathering everybody around the cabinet table and say, okay, guys, let's let's get on the same page here. If that's the kind of, you know, the speech and the, the approach that has to be taken, then go ahead and do this. I mean, you know, it, you're right. They are reaching out. They are trying to do this. And, you know, there were a lot of promises made about the United States is back. Uh, and, and I guess what NATO is saying, what the G7 is saying uh, is, oh, show us. Don't just say it. Show us that, that you've done that. And uh, there's the steps right now i think are causing a lot of people to say wait a second here what's going on and and the problem of course is as you've reported in the past is if the united states doesn't grab the reins and say we're back and we're we're the big dog here there are others like china who are asserting themselves and flexing their muscle that we'd be more than happy to jump into the breach there and i don't think anybody wants to see that happen no and and what what's really frightening is that we don't seem to get yet that the old way of doing things American military might is not what is going to win this argument. That's not it. Well, the best thing that America, the United States, has ever exported was not military, you know, hegemony, but it's our culture, it's the economy, it's the citadel on the hill, the idea that, you know, anyone, if they pull themselves up by their own bootstraps to make something of themselves, those are, you know, that democracy, that, that type of, of attitude is far better than what China or or anyone else preaches that's not a democracy that's trying to step up in, on the world uh, leadership table. I mean, the Russian model, the Chinese model, nobody really aspires to that. They all aspire to the idea of democracy. And if the United States won't step up and support that, then yes, then you're going to see China and Russia uh, exerting their influence in a manner that will make it much difficult for some of these smaller countries to resist the fascism that, uh, and authoritarianism that is represented by those regimes, and by the way, is the cancer that was spread by Donald Trump. Well, the key line I know from uh, Biden's inaugural address, and I think he used it more than once during the campaign too, is uh, we will lead not merely by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. And uh, I guess as they say in, in Missouri these days, Brian, show me. I guess that's, uh, that's me. the message. <laughs> hey, my wife's from Missouri. I know that one well. No, you, you, know, you probably heard it more than a few times. Then. <laughs> yeah. Brian, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for this. Stay well, Brian. We'll talk again soon. You too. Talk to you Take soon. care. Brian J. Karam, of course, political commentator from CNN and columnist for Salon.com. Uh, his podcast just asked the question, uh, very insightful as to what's happening in American politics. The Bill 
Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.